Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. During a week when the right wing of the Senate blocked debate on voting rights legislation, protesters converged on Washington, D.C. to demand action, not just for voter protections, but for climate justice, housing, health care, immigrant rights, and jobs. We've come to tell America now is the time to wake up. Wake up! We've come to be the alarm clock. You can no longer sleep through this revolution. Wake up! This revolution will be televised. This revolution will be live streamed. This revolution is going to shift the power. We come for good trouble. Meanwhile, as Republican lawmakers disparage education about systemic racism, they get schooled by an army general. I do want to know. And it matters to our military and the discipline and cohesion of this military. Also, I speak to journalist John Jeter about the latest effort of government and corporate media to suppress ideas and facts. Don't associate with this organization. Don't do this. This is the information you need to know. It really is propaganda and the media is responsible for doling it out. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital for June 25th, 2021. I'm Esther Ivarum. Now, as the nation witnesses the shocking collapse of a 12-story condominium building in Surfside, Florida, and the failure of a pedestrian bridge over a major highway here in the D.C. area, almost on cue, lawmakers announced on Thursday that they had reached agreement on a compromise bill that will spend $1.2 trillion over eight years on the nation's crumbling bridges, roads, and other infrastructure. Though $1.2 trillion is a lot of money, it is almost half of the $2.3 trillion first proposed by Biden and a tenth of the $10 trillion climate activists say is needed for the United States to begin to make the transition to a fossil fuel free society and fight climate change. Senator Bernie Sanders, chairman of the Senate Budget Committee, told CNN Thursday night that President Biden said he would only sign this compromise bill if his $6 trillion budget is also approved. That budget bill would include many of the human needs, such as health care, elder care, and child care, eliminated from this compromise infrastructure bill. What we have got to do is now invest in making sure that we have affordable housing in this country, that we have home health care for an aging population, that we're able to expand Medicare so that we finally can cover dental care and hearing aids uh, and eyeglasses, that we deal with the crisis in child care where so many families, working families cannot afford uh, child care. And that in addition to all of that, it's absolutely imperative that we deal with the, I would say, existential threat to this planet of climate change. In addition to the diminished size of the infrastructure package, Sanders and other progressives warned that it includes many questionable funding sources. Rather than raise taxes on the rich and corporations, it includes private-public partnerships that could wind up transferring public property into private hands.
under the hashtag, we can't wait. Hundreds of people from a diverse coalition, which included Greenpeace and CASA, rallied Thursday at Union Station and marched for workers excluded from government pandemic relief programs and support for all working families. Also on Thursday, more demonstrators gathered in front of the Supreme Court one day after the Reverend William Barber and the Reverend Jesse Jackson were arrested after they led marches from the court to the Hart Senate building to protest the Senate's refusal to even debate voting rights legislation. Jim Winkler, president of the National Council of Churches, was one of the many speakers to demand that the Senate filibuster, which requires 60 votes to pass a law, be eliminated. Choosing wise, discerning, and reputable leaders for our nation is the responsibility of all our people, not just a few. The John Lewis Voting Rights Act, the Voting the, the For the People's Act, the American Jobs Plan, the $15 hourly wage, these should be passed into law. And the only way this is going to happen is for the filibuster to go. Yes. Mitch McConnell doesn't even want these proposals to be debated. Well, Mitch, go. we're not waiting for you. Yes. We're moving forward now. Yes. Thank you. Now, as we broadcast, the D.C. Poor People's Campaign is holding a justice rally for Tamir Rice on what would have been his 19th birthday. His mother, Samira Rice, is demanding that the Department of Justice reopen the investigation into Tamir's 2014 death at the hands of Cleveland police. Timothy Lohman, who was forced to resign from a previous police department, shot Tamir less than two seconds after exiting his vehicle. The rally is also coinciding with Friday's scheduled sentencing of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd last year. Samira Rice spoke to WPFW Pacifica Radio in advance of the rally, which will be paired with another rally today in Cleveland. She said that when she met with Biden while he was vice president in the Obama administration, that he promised her that he would quote-unquote make things right in seeking justice for Tamir. She said her children who witnessed Tamir's death remain traumatized. It left us with no hope, no trust, destroyed families and developed PTS on top of the PTS we already have for being black and brown on this continent. That's how I can say it has affected my family, the community, uh, Tamir's death is global, so it has touched a lot of people on all seven continents. Yes. So it makes people that, you know, want to speak up for change and, you know, things like that. As for the June 25th rallies marking Tamir's 19th birthday, the D.C. rally starts 12 p.m. at the Navy Memorial Plaza on Pennsylvania Avenue at 7th Street Northwest. The Cleveland rally starts 4 p.m. at Cleveland Public Square. The online campaign is at actionnetwork.org forward slash letters forward slash justice for Tamir 2021. And finally, in culture and media, the Biden administration, the Department of Justice seized this week nearly three dozen news websites based in Iran, Yemen, and Lebanon, including the site for Press TV, Iran's major state funded English language news channel, and a press release. The Department of Justice said the seizures occurred because the .com and .net domains are operated by an American company, VeriSign. 
More on this story later in the show. The AFI Docs Film Festival is ongoing until Sunday, June 27th, online at docs.afi.com. And some screenings are happening in real life at the AFI Silver Theater and Cultural Center in Silver Spring, Maryland, including on June 25th, Summer of Soul, or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised, directed by Amir Thompson, also known as Questlove. It's about the 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival shot over 50 years ago and featuring performances from Stevie Wonder, Mahalia Jackson, Mavis Staples, Sly and the Family Stone, and Nina Simone, and more. More information is at docs.afi.com. And finally, the progressive media community here in D.C. and around the world lost a visionary cultural and media worker, Abdul Shahid Lukman, one half of the production team of Lukman Nation, died suddenly last week, and family and friends gathered to celebrate his life on Tuesday, June 22nd at Plymouth Congregational United Church of Christ in Northeast D.C. His wife, Jacqueline Lukman, vows to carry on the work of Lukman Nation, and we say, Abdul Shahid Presente, may he rest in power. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. I woke up this morning with my mind, and it was stayed on freedom. I woke up this morning with my mind, and it was stayed on freedom. Hallelujah. 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 Well, good afternoon, Washington, D.C. For the last 155 days, we have been waiting on this president and this vice president to fulfill their commitment. Tamika Mallory and Linda and my son and Angelo, we all were driving throughout this country 
telling our people that if you don't vote, they might kill us. Mm -hmm. So we turned out in unprecedented numbers. Yes, sir. Even in Georgia, we went back again. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Because they told us that if we were to get 51 votes in the Senate, yeah. that yes, we could do did. something. Yes, they did. So for the last 155 days, we've been waiting on them to do something. Come on. And because they have not done something, we decided to come to D.C. today yeah. to do something. We came to do something called good trouble. We call it good trouble because it comes to disrupt the trouble that they are causing our people. It's trouble every day when we don't have the money to be able to afford health care. It's trouble. It's trouble every day when children in our communities are unable to be asleep at night because of fear of gun violence. It's trouble. It's trouble every day that our sister like Breonna Taylor had to live in a home of fear of gun violence and police Brutality is trouble. Yes, and so today we've come for some good trouble. Come on, sir. Washington Irving wrote a story that Martin King talked about Ronaldo in 1959 at Morehouse's graduation. Yes, sir. About Rip Van Winkle, who went to sleep for 20 years. Set it up. And when he was awake, he went into up the Hudson Valley and he saw in the post office was a sign of King George. Yeah. yeah. Then when he woke up 20 years later, he saw the signs change. Yeah. And it was George Washington in the post office. Yes, sir. And not only was the storyline goes that he slept for 20 years. Uh-huh. But the story goes that he slept through a revolution. Yes. And we've come to tell America, now is the time to wake up. We've come to be the alarm clock. You can no longer sleep through this revolution. This revolution will be televised. This revolution will be live streamed. This revolution has come to shift the power. We've come for good trouble. This is the revolution. If you can repeat after me as Fred Hampton said, I am a revolutionary. I am a revolutionary. I am a revolutionary. And so we're going to take this revolution all throughout this country. So if you decided you wanted to stay asleep, you better wake up now. If you wanted to go to work easy and not have to be disrupted by protesters, you're going to wake up now. If you thought you were going to be able to sleep in your homes without people chanting and waking you up, you better wake up now. This is a revolutionary summer. Chief Legal Officer of the New Georgia Project, Aklima Conacher. Conacher. Stood in the rain. Stood in the dirt because we knew we were gonna vote, and 
Nothing is going to stop the will of the people. Pass before the people act. Now, because the people will not sleep, because our democracy will not end, we will make sure that the democracy that we dreamt about, that we vote for, will continue to exist for every single person in this country. Let's get it. Let's not forget why we're here. Democracy doesn't sleep, and neither will we. All the way from Georgia, y'all. We coming from all over the place, okay? And now coming from Mainers for Accountable Leadership, all the way from Maine, the executive director, y'all bring Marie up. My last name is Fall Turn, it's a little scary. <laughs> Election Day is Democracy Day. It is our holiday. Our cars are our parade votes. Our pens on the ballot are the fireworks. And our voted, I voted sticker are our souvenirs. The dream of a democracy is where no one is locked out of participation and all voices are equal when casting our vote. The reality of our democracy is one where every marginalized population has had to fight for the right to vote. And every year, white supremacists intent on enacting racist policies attempt to curb the rights and votes of black and brown voters. Will we let them? No. Hell no. I live in Maine. We don't mess around when it comes to voting in Maine. No Mainer loses the right to vote. And come election day, our Secretary of State and the NAACP is at the jail making sure the voices of those locked out of society are still a part of the democratic process and can cast their vote for the person who best represents them. That's right. We don't disenfranchise voters, but all across the country, our people lose the right to vote, and that's not right. No, that's not fair. We don't choose what state we are born into, and it should break all of our hearts and turn that pain into rage in action. That this country, founded on the principle of democracy and the right to vote, that our youth can lose the right to vote before they are even eligible. Because of a choice outside of their control. When we travel, and open that guide in our hotels for restaurants and um, attractions, I want us to find a list of how our rights change. Because too many comfortable in their privilege have no idea how our freedom to vote changes across That's right. state borders. That's right. That's, right. That's right. That's right. In Maine, we have same-day voter registration, early in-person voting system where anyone who can collect small dollar donations can afford to run for office. Yes. You aren't locked out of voting or representing or leading because you don't have wealthy friends or you can't bankroll your campaign. Yeah. You organize and you collect donations and you run. Yeah. That's right. The For the People Act ensures that these basic rights for us Mainers are enacted all across the country. Come on. But my Senator Susan Collins does not oh. believe uh -oh. protecting the right to vote of all Americans is a compelling reason to implement voting rights reforms. Talk about it. 
Do you? Yeah. Yeah, we yes. do. She filibustered a debate on the For the People Act, but the power of the people, all of us here, will stop the filibuster. That's right. So repeat after me. I will not be quiet. I will not be quiet. I will not relent. I will not relent. I will not stand by while the right to vote is taken from our people. I will not stand by while the right to vote is taken from our people. Not in our country. Not in our country. Not when every day we lead with love and rise up to build a community that works for all of us. A country where all of us have the freedom to vote. What do we do when our democracy is under attack? Stand up, fight back! What do we do when our democracy is under attack? Stand up, fight back! You just heard activists rallying Thursday, June 24th for voting rights at the Supreme Court. That was Marie Folleter, Executive Director of Mainers for Responsible Leadership. Before her, Akima Condover of the New Georgia Project. And the first voice was the Reverend Stephen Green, Social Justice Pastor of Greater Allen AME Cathedral of New York and Chair of Faith for Black Lives. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital i'm esther Averam, and for this month's extended segment on culture and media i'm joined again by john jeter former foreign bureau chief for the washington post two-time pulitzer prize finalist and author of flat broke in the free market how globalization fleets working people he joins us from limon costa rica welcome back to the show john thank you esther So we're going to jump right in first with my theme for this month of the U.S. government, U.S. corporate media and their junior partners, which is a new phrase I've taken a liking to, and their brazen attempts to control the news and maintain a false narrative about really what's happening in the world. So just this week, we have the Biden administration, the Department of Justice seizing nearly three dozen news websites based in Iran, Yemen, I think also Lebanon. 
including the site for Press TV, Iran's major state-funded English-language news channel. And uh, I've done interviews with Press TV. I know a lot of people in the progressive community have done, and the anti-war and the peace community have done interviews with Press TV. But the U.S. has yanked the .com and maybe the .net domains away because these designations are owned by an American company called VeriSign. Well, this is what the Justice Department said in a press release. Components of the government of Iran to include IRTVU and others like it disguised as news organizations or media outlets targeted the United States with disinformation campaigns and malign influence operations. The 33 domains are owned by a United States company and IRTVU did not obtain a license prior to utilizing the domain names. So they're basically saying you needed to register as a foreign asset to have a .com or a .net website. And they're just denying that these are media outlets and saying that they're uh, using disinformation campaigns against the United States. And I'm sure that you remember that Press TV's YouTube channel has been taken down and that you also remember the arrest of Marzia Hashemi a couple of years ago, who's a Press TV journalist who's African-American and they treated her very badly, picked her up in St. Louis when she was trying to investigate the mysterious murders of all these Ferguson Black Lives Matter activists. And so, you know, this is happening. Also this month, uh, Mona and Muhammad El-Kurd, who shot that video that went viral across the globe of an Israeli settler from New York State attempting to steal their house in Sheikh Jarrah in East Jerusalem. And this ignited the global solidarity movement with the Palestinian struggle. Well, anyway, these two twins were arrested by Israeli soldiers and just briefly retained, not treated well, but then released. But I wanted to remind everyone of the video that they shot, which really went global, viral, as I said, and really ignited this most recent uprising in support of the Palestinian struggle. Jacob, you know this is not your house. Yes, but if I go, you don't go back. So what's the problem? Why are you yelling at me? I didn't do this. I didn't do this. But you It's easy to yell at me, but I didn't do this. You are stealing my house. And if I don't steal it, someone else is going to steal it. No, no one, no one is allowed to steal it, Yami. So there was actually more news to come out this month about this settler, uh, Yaakov Fauci. Uh, apparently from New York, involved in some fraud investigations here. But what I'm getting at are these examples of this brazen attempt to control the news that we can read, see, and hear. They call it disinformation, but I think these politicians, you know, really start to believe their own BS, you know. Um, otherwise, how, how do you explain Biden's comment, you know, after his summit with Russian President Vladimir Putin, when he seemed oblivious or not to know the extensive involvement of the U.S. in interfering in elections all around the globe? Let's get this straight. How would it be if the United States were viewed by the rest of the world as interfering with the elections directly of other countries and everybody knew it? How would it be? And I don't know. I'm thinking everyone does know it. So I actually think that the press team, the prep team, Biden's speech team has actually been doing a really good job at making Biden sound 
like he's pretty sharp. But this speech and this line just basically drew laughter from all around the world. And I saw one headline that said the U.S.'s soup brain president, you know, thinks that the U.S. has never interfered in elections. So, you know, you're looking at all this from outside the U.S. So I know based on that and your experience as a foreign correspondent, you have some reactions to all these stories. Well, it's extraordinary, really. You know, I mean, Biden's remarks in particular remind me of the quote, I think is typically attributed to, I don't remember who said it, but I know I've heard James Baldwin say it many times where he says, you know, all criticism is a form of autobiography. And so what Biden is saying is exactly, it's almost a dossier or a rap sheet of U.S. imperialism in the post-war era. We have done all these things, I think, by some reports in the Cold War era, the United States between 1949 and roughly 1993 attempted or successfully overthrew the governments of 64 countries. I think some estimates say as many as 81 countries. And so it's really extraordinary to see Biden sort of completely lacking in self-awareness talk about Russia, which the world knows, not all Americans know, obviously, but what the, which the world knows, has not participated in the overthrow of any government since 1917. You could argue Afghanistan, but even that is very complicated, and the United States fingerprints are all over that. And as recently as Ukraine and Libya, which the United States completely orchestrated. This is not my opinion. These are facts. This is, you can find this on YouTube. So it's really extraordinary that Biden is so lacking in self awareness as to run down this list of offenses committed by Russia when in reality it's the United States that is the guilty party. Well, the key word you said in your statement was facts. And even though the media, you know, ridiculed Trump's advisor when she talked about alternative facts around his inauguration, <laughs> they are engaging in the same thing. So just to, to kind of wrap up this little part, I don't want us to forget we also have the ongoing scandals around fact versus fiction that we've covered on the show already. In response to Aaron Maté's continued excellent reporting on the cover-up of falsified UN chemical weapon reports on Syria, the Young Turks went crazy this month, you know, attacking him, cursing on the air. It was really unprofessional. I didn't know if there was some other stuff involved there, like some personal stuff, but it was really wild. And the father and brother of Jail WikiLeaks editor Julian Assange are wrapping up their tour in the United States. I think they're actually going to be back in D.C. before they head back out. And they've had meetings and rallies around the country. We interviewed them on the show last week. And of course, we just can't forget the just longstanding uh, disinformation campaigns that the U.S. has been involved in. Uh, and they're still involved in uh, the gray zone just came out with a piece about us funding uh, media, anti-government media in Nicaragua, which was key. And this media was key in fomenting the attempted coup uh, back in 2018 there. So, you know, that's it for me. I mean, in terms of this, just trying to control the narrative and then accusing other people of trying to do it. So let's go to a brief break and we'll be right back. I know, I know, I know, you think that we don't know, but we know. We screwed in seven separate 
terrorism was now no term, I had terrorism Diego Garcia was terrorism I am conscious, the conscious with terrorism Phosphorus that burns hands, that is terrorism Erdogan and Stern gang, that was terrorism What they did in Hiroshima was terrorism What they did in Fallujah was terrorism Mandela ANC, that was terrorism Jerry Adams IRA, that was terrorism Eric Prince, Black Water was terrorism This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital, and I'm Esther Averam. I'm in conversation with John Jeter for our monthly extended segment on culture and media. Before the break, John, I talked about this obsession with the U.S. government, the corporate media in controlling the narrative with what I think that they wouldn't want to call it fake news, but very often that's what really turns out to be. But that's very much connected with the trend that you're looking at this month. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, they're, they're very closely linked. The U.S. media and the political class at large controls the narrative, frames the debate through this tradition of anti-intellectualism. When I was a correspondent in South Africa, the former South African president, Dabo Mbeki, who was himself an intellectual and the son of a very iconic intellectual in South Africa, a prisoner alongside Nelson Mandela on Robben Island, Dabo Mbeki would often tell the story comparing British arrogance to American ignorance. And he would always tell it this way. He'd say he went to a conference in the United States and some American I think he usually said a woman approached him and was introducing herself. And she says, oh, you're the president of South Africa. I have a friend in Cameroon. Do you know her? And it often brought this sort of awkward laughter from the American foreign correspondents in the room because we knew it was true, right? That is something that an American would say. And so we've really got this tradition where we don't want to know, right? We don't. We discourage fact finding and truth telling. Uh, which is why Assange is in jail right now and, and many other people as well. And so it really handicaps us, hamstrings our efforts to sort of dig out of this political and economic hole that we're in right now. And so I think one of the best examples of this is the recent growing criticism of critical race theory by conservatives. And this has taken on Orwellian terms, of course. Critical race theory is an academic and legal term that actually refers to a very narrow concept of the law and the legal institutions or the legal framework for racism and discrimination that produces such racial disparities in health and wealth and income and and all other facets of American life. But conservatives mostly, although frankly, some Democrats as well have taken to scapegoating critical race theory as real history about racism and slavery and calling it polarizing. So on Tuesday of this week, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said that colleges and universities in the state of Florida that show signs of indoctrination may be defunded. And that is, of course, on the heels of uh, DeSantis signing legislation to ban the teaching of critical race theory in state schools altogether. So on Tuesday, DeSantis boasted about banning critical race theory, uh, according to local media. And he said, quote, we do not want a curriculum 
that is judging students based on their race, adding that he had also banned the New York Times 1619 project. Yeah, and the 1619 Project is really just about positioning the history of slavery and the experience of Black people here as central to the country's history. So DeSantis doesn't want that. Exactly right, because, of course, it, what, what, what they don't want is to be held accountable. And what they also don't want is any real change in uh, their relationship to power. By their, I mean whites generally, but the white ruling class especially, right? They don't want any change in their relationship to power. And of course, summoning this history begins to raise, obviously, troubling questions. But you can't fix what's broken without diagnosing the problem in the first place, right? It's like trying to change a spare tire when you've blown a rod in your engine. And so that's where we're at. And I think you have a clip of a professor who is critical of DeSantis. Yeah, so I was listening to, I think it was MSNBC this week, and I thought that this professor, Tressie McMillan Cottom, was really excellent in terms of talking about where this is all coming from with DeSantis. Well, if you cannot compete in the marketplace of ideas, what you fundamentally do is what DeSantis is doing. You ask for market protectionism. Right. It doesn't want to compete against ideas about learning about poverty or learning about the real history of this nation or global capitalism. So it wants to cheat. That is consistent with uh, modern day Republican politics, but it is inconsistent with intellectualism. So, Esther, you know, I often compare this to, as Fred Hampton famously said, it's a class war. Right. And this effort at anti-intellectualism and framing the narrative, controlling the narrative, as you posited, is akin to a leaflet drop over like Iraq or some other country. But it's, it's over Americans, right? It's a leaflet drop, giving them the information that they want them to have. You know, don't associate with this organization or don't do this. This is the information you need to know. It really is propaganda and the media is responsible for doling it out. But surprisingly, we're seeing some pushback in unlikely places, including from the Pentagon. On Wednesday, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark A. Milley, I believe is how you pronounce his name, pushed back against suggestions from a Republican congressman that the military was becoming too, quote, woke, unquote. He called such accusations offensive and alluded directly to the January 6th attack on the Capitol in which some veterans and active duty members participated, according to the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Milley and mm-hmm. Defense Secretary Lloyd J. Austin, the first black defense secretary, were testifying before the House Armed Services Committee uh, when they were questioned about anti-extremism efforts and curriculums about race relations at service academies and beyond. Uh, Representative Mike Waltz, a Republican of Florida, asked about the teaching of critical race theory, once again, at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, and specifically a seminar called, quote, Understanding Whiteness and White Rage. Uh, And this is how uh, General Milley responded. So before I play the clip, I just want to interject something. These questions were asked within the context of criticizing not only what's taught at this military academy, but also the fact that Lloyd Austin had what they call the stand down, 
where they really had an examination and investigation of extremism within the military. And you had Congress, members of Congress, basically grilling him about, well, what is your definition of extremism? So this whole idea about critical race theory, it's not, you know, it's not just against anti-blackness. It's about asserting the right to hold racist ideas. So in other words, they were, they're trying to make sure that you don't punish our boys if they're racist. So they were trying to get them to say, you know, what is an extremist idea? And Lloyd uh, Austin wouldn't take the bait. But I was also really disappointed in the fact that he's not the one who stood up for the idea of, of defending critical race theory. And he even kind of fell down, I think, on the job when this congressman said, described what was being taught in the military academy as Marxist or something like that. And Representative Mark Waltz, this Republican of Florida that you mentioned, asked about the teaching of critical race theory at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, like you said, right? And specifically a seminar called Understanding Whiteness and White Rage. And then this representative, this came to me from cadets, from families, from soldiers with their alarm and their concern about how divisive this type of teaching is that is rooted in Marxism. So they're saying that talking about whiteness and, and white rage and really racism is rooted in Marxism. I mean, I'm, I'm sure Marx would take credit for it if you asked him and say, okay, I'll take that. But I just thought that was hilarious. But anyway, I just thought that the fact that Austin said back to him, that certainly sounds like something that should not occur. You know, right, I just thought, right. wow. Yeah, it's disappointing. But that, wow. that's why he's there, of course, right? He's there to parrot white supremacy, right? They get the blackface and high places to parrot white supremacy. And I think it's so interesting, too, we bring up Marxism. The Marxist economist, Richard Wolff, who I believe you have interviewed, he is fond of telling the story that he obtained his PhD in economics by going to three of the preeminent colleges, universities in the country, Stanford, Yale, and Harvard. I don't remember the order, but he attended all three of them for undergraduate and then his two graduate degrees. And he says that in that time when he was attending, when he was studying economics, he was not required by any professor, by any class, to read a single word of Karl Marx. That's stunning, right? Whether you're a Marxist or not, here's what we can agree to, right? Marx, Marxism, communism, is the preeminent critique of capital in the world, right? So we're not even having a full-fledged debate because we don't talk about Marxism, who did, by the way, have lots to say about racism and slavery, both in the United States and even in among the Irish and British. I heard him recently say something that was really stunning to me. He said that when he did, I don't know whether it was a dissertation or a major paper in terms of, of graduating for his advanced degrees, he had the word colonialism in the title, and he was studying the impacts of British colonialism, and he was forced to take that word out, <laughs> and that it had to be something else about markets and whatever, and basically just told point blank, you can't use that word. That's a, it's a word that doesn't have any economic meaning or something like that. Oh, wow. But anyway, let's let's play. <laughs> if if you if you're the colonizer, it doesn't. If you're the colonizer, it most definitely does. <laughs> Right. So let's hear what Army General Mark Milley said before Congress on Wednesday. First of all, 
On the issue of critical race theory, et cetera, I'll, I'll obviously have to get much smarter on whatever the theory is. But I do think it's important, actually, uh, for those of us in uniform to be open-minded and be widely read. And the United States Military Academy is a university. Uh, and it is important that we train and we understand. Uh, and I, I want to understand white rage. And I'm white. And I want to understand it. So what is it that caused thousands of people to assault this building and try to overturn the Constitution of the United States of America? What caused that? I want to find that out. I want to maintain an open mind here, and I do want to analyze it. It's important that we understand that because our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, and guardians, they come from the American people. So it is important that the leaders, now and in the future, do understand it. I've read Mao Zedong. I've read, I've read Karl Marx. I've read Lenin. That doesn't make me a communist. So what is wrong with understanding, having some situational understanding about the country for which we are here to defend? And I personally find it offensive that we are accusing the United States military, our general officers, our commissioned, non-commissioned officers of being, quote, woke or something else because we're studying some theories that are out there. That was started at Harvard Law School years ago, and it proposed that there were laws in the United States, antebellum laws prior to the Civil War, that led to uh, a power differential with African Americans that were three-quarters of a human being when this country was formed. And then we had a civil war and emancipation proclamation to change it. And we brought it up to the Civil Rights Act in 1964. It took another 100 years to change that. So look it, I do want to know. And it matters to our military and the discipline and cohesion of this military. Yeah, so that's General Mark Milley speaking before Congress on Wednesday, basically having to push back when uh, Lloyd Austin was unable to push back to these this grilling about really about the teaching of history. That's really what it's all about. It's exactly right. It's exactly right. As uh, the late novelist James Murray used to say, uh, without our history, we become hysterical. And that's exactly what's happening in the United States right now. We become hysterical and unable to deal with any of these problems. Yeah. And so some of that hysteria is definitely uh, manifested in these laws being passed around the country, just like in Florida, that's basically outlawing the teaching of history. They're using the phrase critical race theory, which is totally something separate that you mentioned, to to discuss any type of teaching of history of slavery, of the Jim Crow era, and really the way that racism is systemic. They have a real problem with their with children learning that racism is a systemic problem, that it's not just a problem of individual prejudice, you know, and basically they're saying that you're trying to teach our children that all white people are inherently racist and that they're not good people, basically, right? Exactly. And so the other thing that I want to say, because we have to wrap it up, is that this is being used as a part of the culture war as they ramp up for the next two elections in 2022 and 2024. And so they're using a mislabeled attack on history and truth and facts as part of this culture war that they're ramping up, as well as continuing to demonize Black Lives Matter and misusing the call to defund the police and linking it to increase in crime, which we know is related to the pandemic and the general crises of this country that aren't dealt with economically, socially, and any other ways, right? Right. So that is really what this is coming down to. Yeah, it's this continuing effort 
that began about 300 years ago, began in earnest to pathologize black people, to, to pathologize the oppressed people, to take the heat off the oppressor. It's not complicated, right? So just, just as one example, and I'll make this very quick, Esther. Last month in May, the author and journalist Joe Klein wrote a piece in the New York Times, this praiseworthy piece of the late U.S. Senator from New York, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was also a scholar before he ran for office and he worked in the Kennedy and the Nixon administration uh, is famous for writing a, a paper on what to do about the black poor in the urban areas. The title of, of Klein's piece was Daniel Patrick Moynihan was often right. That's absolutely not true. Daniel Patrick Moynihan had no ideas which uh, is respected by scholars today, sociologists or historians. He was a rabid racist. We know this. We know this from conversations that were recorded between him and Richard Nixon, in which he described blacks as children, said that white people were genetically superior intellectually. He was a rabid racist. And so controlling the narrative and this anti-intellectual campaign, the sort of third wheel of that is revising history. When we can't ignore it, let's just revise it. And so this is really the, the very big hurdle that Americans are going to have to sort of climb over if we're going to get to the other shore. Okay. I know we have to wrap up, but we have like one minute to just talk about some culture hot takes. <laughs> I know that you're hot about uh, Simmons on the 76ers being dissed. And real quick, John. I just think it's almost amusing that this young man who can't shoot very well, but is an excellent basketball player, and suddenly he's the most hated person on the planet because, you know, a basketball series was lost and he didn't play as well as he should have. Don't we have other issues to talk about, like single-payer health care and Things like that. Yeah, well, I think that you were saying that he was an excellent def defensive player, whereas many offensive, you know, wonder kind geniuses, they aren't good defensive players, but they don't get the same type of rebuke that yeah, he received. Yeah, exactly. We don't so, talk about the, the Dallas Maverick player, uh, Luka Doncic. Doncic. Right, who, who also <laughs> lost the series with his bad defensive play. But no one ever talks about that, right? He's a great offensive player, but he can't stop a lamppost. He can't guard a lamppost. And no one has anything to say about that. Well, mine are really quick. I wanted to give a shout out to Naomi Osaka for stepping away from the French Open and reclaiming her time. <laughs> and I think she may also be skipping Wimbledon for her own mental health. Right. And I noticed that despite that, she's been uh, featured in these new ads uh, for Sweet Green, the salad restaurant. And also she's on the cover of some version of Vogue. It may be Japan Vogue and, you know, looking very stylish. Also, yeah, Simone Biles, who is the, you know, queen of gymnastics. Apparently there was a scandal about how she's been cheated out of high scores for these like phenomenal new gymnastics moves that she's created mm. that the judges or didn't want to give her a high score because they don't want someone else attempting it because it's so dangerous. <laughs> and then, well, and then also uh, the, the statement was that if they gave her a, a, a score that was appropriate, she would be unbeatable. So basically you have her being <laughs> they say cheated that, out of, they say that like it's a bad thing, don't they? <laughs> right. You know, like, um, you, so is, this is kind of like a built in deflate gate or something, right? So right, like, right. you know, you have to uh, deflate her, her grades. So, right. or her score so that she, 
doesn't achieve, her excellence isn't acknowledged. And then finally, I wanted to say to all the people who may have seen the same social media post that I did that there is going to be no versus competition uh, performance between Tony Braxton and Mary J. Blige, that a fan created this fake flyer that's saying that that was coming up as a, a vocal battle between Tony Braxton and Mary J. Blige. And then the company had to come out and say, no, that was just a fake flyer. So that's a, that's a good, that's wah, a good wah, thing. Wah. That's a good thing for Tony Braxton. Cause she is no match for Mary J. Blige. <laughs> wah, wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. I know you, you've always hated Tony Braxton. I remember that's like right. every time the song came on, I mean, remember I mean, it's just a nineties thing. Yeah. It's just a yeah. 1990s thing. You know, love should have brought you home last right, night. Right. Um, right. Or uh, something like uh, the other one. Unbreak my heart. Yeah, yeah I remember and, that. Oh, and the one about not breathing again, which I think may be the stupidest song ever written. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> just don't be a hater. There's a lot of people, Tony Braxton fans out here, especially in Washington D.C. So that's true. That's true. Don't don't have like hate mail coming to on the ground. But anyway, but, but Mary J is the <laughs> ultimate. Let's just be honest. Well, okay. You know, everybody has their taste. So. But anyway, I've been speaking to John Jeter, our, he's our media critic, but he's also a former foreign correspondent for the Washington Post and author of Flat Broke in the Free Market, How Globalization Fleece Working People. Thank you for joining me again, John. Thank you, Esther. It's been a pleasure. And that's it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. You can check out all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. You can also like the show at On the Ground Show on Facebook, Twitter, and I thank you to all of our supporters on patreon.com at On the Ground Show. Our new podcast, on the Ground with Esther Averum is on all your podcast platforms. The music we play this hour included I Won't Complain, sung by soloist Whitney Jackson at the Celebration of Life for Abdul Shahid Lukman, June 22, 2021 in Washington, D.C., Cloud Blue by Isaiah Roussan, and Terrorist by Loki. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averum. Until next time, Take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material, or you can see all the ways to support, including end-of-the-year giving and PayPal on our website, which you know is onthegroundshow.org. Thank you.